Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile device, uh, please turn with me to the book of Titus in chapter number two. Um, Today we are in uh, part two of our series titled uh, Pillar of Truth. And the reason why we're in this series right now is because as we talked about last week, uh, the reason it can actually be found in the book of uh, Timothy, uh, the first book of Timothy, chapter three. um, And in this letter, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy, this young pastor that he left in charge of this church in the city of Ephesus. And in this letter, uh, Timothy, you know, I mean, Paul says to Timothy, beginning in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing you these things so that, so that if, I de- if I delay, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. You see, 2,000 years ago, the greatest event in all of history happened. God intervened into human history. And in fulfillment of prophecy, God sent his son, Jesus, into the world as the promised Messiah. And in, in, in order for us that, that to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves. Okay, Christ came to rescue mankind from the grip of his sin. Because the truth is we can't save ourselves. We are hopeless. We are lost in the bondage to sin, but Jesus came to save sinners. And that right there is the gospel message. That is the good news. And whoever believes in Christ, whoever turns away from their sin and turns towards Jesus in faith and trust in him alone, those will not perish and they will not face eternity in hell, but they have the moment they believe the moment that they trust Christ eternal life. And that is why Christ came. He was born of a virgin He lived a perfect life. He um, claimed to be God in the flesh. And he willingly went to the cross where he was tortured and killed so that our sins could be forgiven. And three days later, he literally and physically rose from the dead. And in so doing, he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is what he claimed to be, which is God in the flesh. And that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from the penalty of our sin, save us from the power of the sin in our life, and, and give us hope for an eternity with Christ free from the presence of sin, which is exactly what we long for and we wait for. And before Christ went to heaven, he started a movement that had never been known before. He started a movement unlike anything that had ever been, ever happened. No, no, nobody in the world had ever seen anything like this. This movement was called, Jesus called it the ecclesia or the gathering. We translate that as the word church. Christ started a living organism, not an organization. Okay. It was an organism called the church. This is a living, breathing organism that it was made up of living, breathing Christ followers, all knitted together in close fellowship with a common purpose, which is to share the hope and the truth about Christ with the world around us. And, that, and also to follow wherever he leads. The church is God's ordained instrument to share the truth of Christ with the rest of the world. And it is the church that is to be the reflection of Christ and the beacon of hope in the dark world around us. It is the church that brings hope to the hopeless. It's the church that God uses to preserve and to teach the truth about God's mercy and grace and his plan for salvation. The church... That Christ started is the pillar of truth in the world. The church is the guardian, the steward, and and the teacher of the doctrines or the teachings that lead to salvation. And Paul says that the church is a pillar of truth. And I'm writing this to you so that you may know how the people, the members of the church are to behave. Because the people 
are the church, which means they themselves are a reflection of Christ. And if they're a reflection of Christ, that means that when the world sees Christ's followers, they are seeing Jesus. And the members of the church, the pillar of the truth, ought to live and act in a way that honors that image. He said, that's why I wrote you this letter. He said to Timothy, you as a pastor need to be able to teach the members of the church how to live you know, and act corporately, but also individually as the pillar of truth in the world among us. And that's why we are in this series. We're going to read, uh, first, read through First uh, and Second Timothy in the letter of Titus so that we can know how all of us as individuals and all of us as a unified body of believers can actually live our lives and behave in a way that honors God and upholds the truth of Christ for all the world to see. Now, there's actually a lot of background information um, about why we're you know, going through all three of these letters and why they're all connected to one another. And we actually covered all that last week. In fact, last week was the introduction for this series. And we spent a lot of time setting up this uh, series in the context for this series. And so if you missed that, you might be a little bit lost at some points and that's okay. Uh, but what you need to do is you just need to go to our uh, church website. Um, or you can go to our SoundCloud page uh, and you can listen to part one and get caught up. The message is actually already uploaded, ready to go, and the address is in your bulletin. Uh, only just don't do it right now, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll actually get, you can get to that a little bit later. Uh, but last week we looked at two central themes in Paul's letter uh, to Timothy and Titus. And, and, and these two themes, number one were, was doctrine, which is the preserving and the teaching uh, of sound doctrine, or our response and then our response to doctrine. You see, doctrine is a big fancy theological word. It really means teachings of the church. It's how we teach the truth uh, to other people about Jesus Christ. It's how we teach people the gospel. It's how we teach people to actually learn to follow Jesus. Paul encourages Timothy and Titus to protect and to teach the true doctrine of the church. They're, they were to, to teach what, what Paul keeps calling sound doctrine. And they were also then to rebuke and correct anyone who taught a false doctrine. Because as we said, true doctrine, as we, last week we, we covered this, true doctrine leads to life. False doctrine leads to death. And so Timothy and Titus were to guard and teach sound doctrine and to train people to do the same thing. Now, the other thing that we talked about is how we're supposed to respond to doctrine. Because as we said, if, if we hear and receive sound doctrine, then that truth will change us and reshape us and lead us into right action. Because true doctrine always leads to right action. You hear the truth about your sin and the penalty of your sin and how Christ died for you, you know, and your sins. And if you receive that truth and you believe it and you put your trust in Jesus, you were saved from your sin, okay, at that point, okay, you see right action follows follows the truth and it leads to life that life that you when you put your faith in christ doctrine is what leads to life the doctrine is to be saved by grace through faith and the action then is to believe in that doctrine to believe in christ put your faith in him our action always must follow the teachings the doctrines sound doctrine always leads to right action and more importantly transformation now i want to remind you um of this because we're actually going to look in a text in Titus chapter 2 that really gets to the heart of the matter here. Um, of this doctrine and, and right action type of relationship. And, and, and this text helps us to see more in depth of how God's word um, or sound doctrine naturally leads to a change in our lives and a change in our behavior. In fact, uh, let's just go ahead and pick that up in, in Titus chapter 2. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 1. Paul writes, um, But as for you... 
Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love and steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and and, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive, to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that, no, that, so that an opponent may not put to shame... That an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that everything that they may, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then he says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that Paul, he kind of bookends this conversation. Um, He says in verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he says in verse 15, declare these things or teach these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. And then in between these verses, Paul gives a list of instructions for people in the church. He gives instructions for older men and how they're to behave. Older women, how they're to behave. Um, he gives instructions for younger women and younger men and slaves. And even, even you know Titus himself. Paul says to teach sound doctrine. And then he immediately gives a list of instructions. And then he wraps up this section with declare these things or teach these things exhort and rebuke with all authority. And what Paul is saying here is, Titus, you need to teach these things, exhort, urge them, you know, encourage them to apply the, what, what you're teaching into their lives and then rebuke or correct whatever is in error and do so with all authority. Paul tells Titus that he has the spiritual authority to teach doctrine and encourage life changes and behaviors that result from that doctrine. And in this conversation, Paul tells us actually the reason why he should teach it. And the reason why these teachings should be taken seriously and obey, he, in fact, he says, he says uh, in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to re- renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, later in this series, we're going to actually spend some time uh, talking about the behaviors that Paul identifies in verses 2 through 10. But right now, I want to focus on really this reason why. Uh, because because in, in verses 11 through 14, there is a truth here that we actually need to identify. And not only identify, we need to understand and we need to 
take ownership of. And ultimately, we need to be shaped by this truth. Because there's something in this section, a doctrine in this section of text, that, that, that is increasingly gets left out of churches and left out of the lives of Christians. There's a, a core Christian teaching that shows up over and over and over again in these three letters. Yet it's something that gets ignored increasingly by a number of people who follow Christ. And, and really to best illustrate this point, I want to share something with you um, uh, written by a Christian comic or a Christian artist uh, named uh, Adam Ford. And, and the subject matter of this particular cartoon is called the American popular version. Okay. So it's not, you know, it's the American popularized version of text. And so the text reads like this. It says in John 14, 15, if this is Jesus speaking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, which is exactly what it says. Jesus says that to a T. In fact, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, he's saying that you will obey me and do the things that I say. But in America, According to our cultural theology, here's what people think that means. And I command you to live exactly like non-believers do, but still call yourself a Christian and say that that's what we what's what grace means. Okay. Now, I, I, now I know this is kind of silly. Okay, it's a cartoon, but but really, isn't this how it is? I, I mean, think about this. Here in the Western world, there are some people who say, you know, you know, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I asked Jesus into my heart, you know, at one point in my life. I prayed that sinner's prayer. I asked Jesus to be my savior, right? And, and, but then those same people, when you look at their lives, they look like everyone else. They, they do the same things that everybody else is doing. They get caught up in the same addictions as everybody else. They engage in the same kinds of vanity and pride and lust and greed as everyone else. I mean, they're here on, at church on Sunday morning, and then they're drunk by Friday night. You know, they're, they're here on Sunday morning praising the Lord, you know, and then Monday morning they're cussing like a sailor at work. You know, they're, 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 you have people that, that call themselves Christians, you know, who don't have an ounce of remorse at all for their sexual sin as they engage in adultery and fornication and sex outside of marriage or, or pornography, which is really the epitome of mental lust. You have Christians who say things that like, well, homosexuality is a sin, but they don't have a problem with the fact that being that, that, that they're, they're living with or being sexually active with someone that they're not even married to. Not to mention, you know, you have people who will come to church and they will love on people and they will, they will love God and they will shake hands and proclaim their, their, their love for God and other people and then turn right around and engage in gossip and slander and refuse to forgive other people and carry around grudges and even, you know, go out and be vindictive and hateful and sometimes even downright physically violent towards other people. In fact... I, you know, Facebook's just like a breeding ground to find all kinds of examples. So I saw on Facebook that this person who's a professing Christian, I've seen, you know, I've seen this person say some things about, you know, about prayer and, and Christ and how they love Jesus. And then this same week I, I see, you know, a post because they were so upset, you know, they were talking about like how angry they were and that hell hath no fury and they're going to go out and they're going to exact vengeance and you better not mess with me, you know, over some perceived wrong against their family member and they're going to march down somewhere and they're going to, you know, go get in someone's face. And, and I was going, wow, okay. See, the problem is Christians are supposed to be the church. The church is supposed to be the pillar of truth. The church is supposed to be the hands and the feet of Christ himself in the world around us. The church is, and those who make up the church are supposed to be the real image 
of Jesus in the world. And, and the world is supposed to, to see us. And, and when they do, they're supposed to see Christ. But how can the world see Christ when we simply okay with just being like everyone else? How can the world see Christ when I say I'm a Christian, but then nothing in my life has changed? I mean, how in the world are we going to see Jesus when we continue to live as willing slaves to the very same sins that we're, we were in bondage to before Christ came into our lives? What kind of distorted image are we showing the world when we live that way? We're showing a false, distorted image, an image that's based on a false doctrine. And this false doctrine is this. God loves you just as you are, so you don't ever have to change. It's a false doctrine that many people have bought into. I accepted Jesus into my heart, so I don't have to change. I don't have to repent of anything. I don't have to do anything different. God loves me just like I am, so I can just stay like I am. I'm telling you right now, that is a false doctrine. It's a false teaching that's, re- that's resulting in, a, in faulty actions. And that produces a false image of Christ in the believer in the church. And so when the world sees that, they're like, who needs Christ? Who is Christ? You say you're a Christian, but you're still a jerk. You say you're a Christian, but you're still a drunk. You, you call yourself a Christian, a, you know, a forgiven child of God, but you're sleeping with somebody else's spouse. You say that you've, you know, you've been born again, but you're the most hateful, nasty person I know. That false doctrine leads to a faulty action it, it, and in turn produces a false image of Christ. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. I thought you said that you don't have to be perfect. You, you said that, you, in fact, you even said you won't, even, won't be perfect this side of heaven. And you're right, I said that. And I'll continue to say that. You're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. But there's a big difference between being imperfect and being saved and earnestly seeking the glory of God through obedience and being a person who claims the grace of God in their life but refuses to change. There's a huge difference. Because let me just tell you the truth. False doctrines say God loves you just as you are, so you don't have to ever change. But the true doctrine says, God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Let me say that again. God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. God accepts you no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. All right? You're accepted because of the the, the sacrifice of Christ, but he's not going to let you stay there. He's not going to let you stay in the sin that condemned you to death. You see, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. But we really need to fully understand what he means here. Because for many Christians in America, that means to us that, that Christ came to save us from the penalty of our sin. And that's it, which is, which is true. He did save us from our sin. But for many of us, that, that's all there is to it. He came to save me from my punishment for sin. He came to forgive me. He came to give me a free pass into heaven. But the truth is, that's really just part of it. Yes, he came to save you from the penalty of your sin, which is called justification. You were justified before God because of Christ. By Christ's sacrifice, you were declared righteous and you were justified in the eyes of God. But there is so much more to it than that. Christ didn't come to save you from your sin so that you can continue to live in that sin, making a bigger and bigger mess of your life. Because we all know, 
We all understand that sin leads to destruction. Sin always has a cost. Sin always exacts a price in our life. So Christ didn't come to save you from the penalty of sin to simply have you continue destroying your life and your family's life and your witness by your sin. He came to save you from sin completely. And that's the heart of what, what Paul's driving at in this letter. It's the central idea of chapters of chapter uh, 2, verses 11 through 14. In fact, let me just read it again for you. Okay, For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now notice verse 11 begins and Paul says the word for, and anytime you see Paul use the word for, there's a reason for that. Okay. And what, what happens is when he says that he is connecting what he said before to what he is about to say. Okay. And, and so in this context, when Paul is actually saying the word for, it's actually, he's giving us the reason why you can actually substitute that word for basically for the word because. Okay, he says, the reason why I told you to teach doctrine and instruct these people to behave a certain way. Okay. Is all about what I'm about to say. He says, for or because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Waiting for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, the reason why I told you this stuff. Okay, about sound doctrine and how people should behave is because of this. Okay, and, he, and the first thing he said is the, the, the grace of God appeared. Now, this right here, this is kind of a strange expression. Okay, because God, in His, okay, because what happens here, He's not saying is what He's not saying here is that the grace of God, like this this attribute of grace, this this kind of like state of grace, appeared because because God has always shown us grace. Okay, from the very beginning, God showed mankind grace. When, when, when the fall happened and he let mankind continue to live, that was grace. Okay, when he allowed them to make propitiation for their sin, it was grace. When, when God sends the rain, you know, to water the crops, that is grace. When, when God allows good things to happen to people, no matter whether they're believers or not, that is still grace. And so his grace, the attribute of grace didn't appear. Something else appeared. He's saying, actually, that the embodiment of grace appeared. Grace incarnate appeared. The full expression and embodiment of, of that grace, the grace of God appeared. Similar to how the word of God appeared and became flesh and entered the world. Okay, what he's talking about here is Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. Jesus is the grace of God. Jesus Christ appeared and he appeared and when he did, he brought salvation for all people. Christ appeared and he brought salvation, justification. He brought salvation from the penalty of sin. When, when, when Jesus came, he brought the payment for our sins. He brought the payment for the sins of everyone. And does that mean everybody gets saved? No. Christ brought salvation for all people, but we still need to receive that salvation. We still need to receive that salvation through repentance and faith. We turn from our sins and toward Christ in faith. Salvation is offered to all, but those who turn to Christ in faith receive it. Jesus says, actually in John three eighteen, for whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So Jesus came into the world 
And he brought salvation from the penalty of sin. Christ brought justification to those who would receive it. Okay? But that's the first part of the reason why. Because notice what he says. He says, for the grace of God, Christ has appeared, bringing salvation, justification for all people. And then look at what it says. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. You see, Christ, when he came, he didn't simply come to save you from the penalty of your sin. He came to save us from the power of sin. Christ appeared and he came into the world to bring salvation. And he appeared to train us to overcome the power of our sin. And this happens by, one number one, learning to renounce or turn away from the things that are ungodly in our worldly passions. And number two, learning to embrace the other things like self-control and living upright and living a godly life. The grace of God appears to change us not just simply give us a free pass to our sin but to also change us into people who walk away from sin people who reject ungodliness and in turn and pursue upright and godly lives this is the second part of salvation the first part of salvation is justification where you're declared righteous before god by the blood of christ and because because of that you're saved from the penalty of sin the second part of salvation is called sanctification that is where god goes to work inside of you changing you reshaping you that's 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 where god saves you from the power of sin he's progressively setting you free from the power of that sin in your life he goes to work inside of you building you up strengthening you so you can overcome your addictions and your temptations and the sins that plague your life. It's called sanctification. That's where God is cleaning you up from the inside out. In fact, it's a huge part of why Christ came. Uh, Paul says Christ, uh, Christ um, gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Christ died to save us from the penalty of sin for sure, but he also died to redeem us from lawlessness. Now this word redeem, this is really an important uh, concept for us because in this, this culture, when Paul's talking to redeem, it was to pay ransom from someone. Okay. And that ransom you paid was from somebody who was enslaved. And, And that's what Paul is saying here, that we are enslaved to lawlessness. We're enslaved to sin. In fact, in John 8, uh, 34, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who practices sin sin is, is a slave to sin. We're all at some point a slave to our sin. But God sent Christ to redeem us and to set us free. That's why, in, in, why Paul tells us in Romans 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that, that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And I have, and, and have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Jesus came to save you and to save me from the penalty of sin. But he also came to save you from the power of the bondage of sin. He's come to set you free from your sin so that you can become obedient and become slaves to righteousness. And that's what Paul is saying here in this text. The grace of God came to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to turn away from sin and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives or to be obedient to the word of God. You see, the, the, the true doctrine leads to life, and that life leads to right action. Okay? 
And, and, and here's, here's the important and the really kind of hard part to understand. One of the major points of these three letters is that our behavior doesn't save us. We're not saved by our behavior. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by what we do. Okay? But our behavior and what we do is, in fact, an indication that we have believed the true doctrine of Christ and that we have actually stepped into life. One of the major themes of this letter is that justification and sanctification go hand in hand. One naturally follows the other. Once you were justified, you immediately begin to be sanctified by God. Once you trust in Christ, your behavior should naturally begin to change. Some, it's faster than others. But Paul says in the opening of his letter, you know, uh, Titus 1 verses 1 through 2. Um, he says, a serv- uh, Paul, he's identifying himself, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, God's people, and their knowledge of the truth, which is doctrine, which accords with godliness, right action, in the hope of eternal life, salvation. See, Paul tells us his whole ministry is built on teaching the truth so that people can be saved and as a result live obedient, godly lives. Justification and sanctification go hand in hand. If you were saved from the penalty of sin, you were simultaneously saved from the power of sin. If you're saved from the condemnation of sin, you are no longer a slave to sin and you're no longer obligated to obey its commands in your life anymore. In fact, Jesus says in John 8.38, So if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. If Christ sets you free from the death sentence that comes with sin, he also sets you free from the obligation to obey your sin. You see, it's what you believe that saves you. Doctrine leads to life and freedom, and that life and freedom leads to right action and obedience to the Word of God. And this is critically important for us to understand because our culture wants to embrace only one part of this. It wants to embrace the part about not having to pay for your own sins. It wants to embrace the part about being forgiven. It wants to embrace the part uh, you know, of Jesus shed his blood so I don't have to go to hell. It wants to embrace the part about there not being any condemnation. But it refuses to believe that forgiveness and freedom should radically change us. It should radically transform us. It should make us different from the inside out. Our culture refuses to believe that that when, when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, something radically different changes about us. And his presence should urge us on and cause us to be moved to repent and turn away from things that God hates and embrace the things that God loves. Our culture refuses to acknowledge that. Our culture wants to believe that God forgives us and then kind of winks at our sin. Like it's no big deal. Our culture wants, refuses to believe that once you are saved, there is, you know, th- there's an expectation that your heart begins to come into alignment with God's heart. And that you begin to actually love what God loves and hate what God hates. And let me just tell you, if there's anything you need to understand, is that God hates sin. He hates sin. He detests it. It's offensive to him. It's an affront to him. He hates drunkenness. He hates sexual immorality in every form. He hates dishonesty. He hates pride and greed and envy and lust. He hates bitterness and unforgiving hearts. 
Okay, make no mistake about it. God hates sin with a passion. His anger and his wrath will be poured out on sin. He is never okay with it. He doesn't wink at the sin in your life and think that it's not a big deal. He never laughs at your inappropriate jokes and gestures and innuendos. He never thinks that you're cute or funny when you're so drunk you can barely talk. He, he, God detests you being addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography. God absolutely hates sin with a passion. And, and, and the reason why he hates it so much... It's because it dishonors him and it robs him of glory and it's so destructive. It's destructive to us and those around us. Your sin dishonors God who paid with his blood to save you. And that sin will lead to destruction in your life on some level. Okay? Drunkenness is costing you something right now. It is costing you big. It may even be costing you everything at some point in your life. Okay? Your sexual immorality, be it adultery or pornography or fornication or, or homosexuality, or just simply the lust of, of, uh, that's disguised as flirting with other people, that dishonors God and it's destructive to you. And it's destructive to your family and it's destructive to your community. Your willingness to gossip and talk trash about people is poisoning your heart and it's destroying your ability to be a witness for Christ in the world around us. God hates He absolutely hates unequivocally sin, all sin, and he wants you to hate it too, but he loves obedience because obedience honors God. Obedience puts God first. Obedience was the natural order of things before mankind fell, and obedience ultimately is what is good for us. I mean, I've never met a person who decided to follow Jesus you know, with all their heart and obey the word of God who ever regretted not having an affair. Okay? I've never met someone who, who, who regretted not stealing something. Right? I never met someone who, who, who regretted not getting addicted to meth or alcohol. I never met someone who ever regretted ruining the lives of their children by getting a divorce. I never met someone who followed God and thought, you know, maybe my life would be better off if, if, you know, if I start holding some grudges against some people now. You know? The truth is we all know, we all instinctively know that obedience is what's best for us. And that's what God loves. God loves that. And he loves it when we, out of love and gratitude towards him, obey his commands. Now, he doesn't want us to obey out of obligation, like we're trying to live up to some set of rules. That's what the Pharisees did. He wants us to obey because that's what our desire is, is to be close to him. And that's the way it should be, because the natural byproduct of salvation should be love and gratitude and obedience. Our salvation should move our hearts toward God. It should move our hearts toward God in gratitude and love for God that results in a desire to be obedient and to be closer to him. Okay, that's in the message of the gospel of Christ. If it's properly understood and properly received will not just result in the canceling of, of a sin debt. It will result in a radical transformation of our hearts. That's why Jesus uses metaphors like being born again. Okay, this is a really perplexing expression. That's why Nicodemus, when he heard it, he's like, I don't understand. Jesus, when he says, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? It was a perplexing, it's a radical kind of idea. Jesus was referring to this radical event that every Christian goes through when they truly receive Christ. That they're spiritually born again. It's a real event. They're spiritually dead one moment and then they're made alive again. They're one thing before they meet Christ and then there's something else altogether different after they receive Christ. They become brand new. In fact, Paul 
explains this in Romans when he says, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because from the very beginning, people were like looking at the gospel saying, so you mean I can be saved and not have to change, right? And Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We died right along with Christ. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are brand new. We are born again. For if we have been united with him in his death, In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's our hope. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin, which is the point. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died to Christ, we believe that we... We'll also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the, tr- for the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the radical transformation that we're talking about here. And then he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, you know, to to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You have been reborn and your members to God's God is an instrument of righteousness for sin will, will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. The grace of God appeared. Jesus appeared not to just save us from the penalty of sin, but to transform us and to change us and to train us to reject and renounce and repent from ungodliness and worldly passions and to be obedient and to live self-controlled, upright, godly Lives. God expects if you were saved, truly saved, your life will change. You will learn to turn away from your sin and you will learn to become obedient. Now, there, there's going to be a lot of Christians who will say, well, well, wait a minute. Um, uh, you said that you're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. You didn't say anything about obedience. In fact, you, you say that over and over again, it's not what you do that saves you. It's what you believe. You said that, you know, you're saved by grace, right? But what, is, what, is, what does grace have to do with, with obedience here? Well, you're right. You know, it's, it's not what you do that saves you. It's what you believe. And you were, in fact, saved by grace through faith. But we must clearly understand that salvation doesn't stop at justification. The same God that justifies you is the same God that works inside of you, sanctifying you. Notice what Paul says here. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, which is justification for all people. And that's the same God 
that is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions or to repent from our sins, all right, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, which means to be obedient. The same God that justifies you is the same God and the grace that, that begins to work inside of you, changing you and sanctifying you. And it's the same grace that ultimately will deliver you from the presence of sin. As, as we're waiting, it says in verse 13, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our ultimate hope is for Christ to return and to make all things new and give us our glorified bodies. And, 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 and this will be a time that we all long for, all creation long for, where there is no strife and no more tears and no more pain and no more sin. That is our hope. So the God that saves you from the penalty of sin, justification, is the same God that saves you from the power of sin, sanctification. And that same God will one day save you from the presence of sin. That's glorification. That's the fullness of salvation. God is not simply going to forgive you of your sin and leave you where you are. The plan is to first remove the penalty of sin and then to remove the power of sin that, that, that exerts, over, exerts itself over you. And then ultimately he will remove the presence of sin where it can never, ever affect us again. That's the fullness of God's plan. That's the fullness of our salvation. And it's because of that plan, Jesus says, that, that Jesus gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And then notice what it says, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's God's plan for you. Wants you to receive Christ, to be transformed into someone who rejects ungodliness and who pursues obedience and is zealous and excited for and passionate about doing good works for God. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians uh, that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For... <laughs> There's that word again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God saved you for a reason. And that reason isn't so that you can just keep living the rest of your life like the rest of the world. Okay? And, and the reason isn't so you could feel okay about yourself and just continue to live in those illicit relationships with someone that you're not married to. And the reason is so that you can... you. Know, it, it, the, the reason isn't so that you can just continue on thinking like, you know what? God loves me just like I am. And it didn't matter if I ever change. Okay. He saved you for a reason. And that reason is to do the good works that he has already prepared beforehand for you to do. And the reason why he wants you to do those good works is because you are the church. The pillar of truth in the world around us. He wants you to do the good works that he's calling you to do. He wants you to be obedient because you are the image of Christ in the world. You are the church. You're the living and shining example of God's goodness. You are to be a witness of the love and the faithfulness and the mercy of the grace of God. That is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. 
And this right here, this is the theme that runs through the, all three of these letters. Teach sound doctrine and encourage right action. Now, these two weeks that we've covered so far is really kind of the beginning of this series, all right? In fact, it's the foundation on which we're going to build over the next several weeks. And so there's a lot of practical stuff that we're going to talk about uh, in the next several installments. But for today, let's just, let's just talk about what to do with this, okay? How do we apply this to our lives? Because the implications of what we're talking about today are simply this. If you truly receive Christ as your Savior and you're truly converted to new life, then your life should be in the process of change. There should be some evidence of that change in your life. If you truly understood the gospel and realized how hopelessly broken you are without Christ, and you gladly turned to Christ in faith, received him as your Lord and Savior, there should be some evidence of that in your life. Something in your life should be changing. You should be feeling conviction for your sin. You should, your sin should cause you to be uncomfortable. You should be moved to turn away from that sin and towards obedience. Not to say you're going to be perfect at it, but you should be moved that direction. Now, on the other hand, if you're someone who has made a profession of faith in your life, but your life isn't changing and you don't really feel conviction for your sin and you think it's okay to continue to do what you're doing, you know, and that God's okay with the sin in your life. And maybe you even think, well, hey, you know what? The things that they said that this is sin in the Bible isn't a sin in the Bible. If, if that's you... I would check my heart. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Check to see if you're really a, a real believer. He says, test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? If he's in you, he's going to change you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. A person can claim to be a Christian and still not be of the faith. And the evidence of our faith is the way that our lives change once Christ lives in us. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about being holier than thou. I'm talking about true repentance, true change. Because true doctrine leads to life and freedom. And that life and freedom leads to right action in the world. And it's, and it's when that happens, we as believers individually and together as the church, you know, as we hold true to the doctrines, the true doctrines of the word of God, and we live accordingly, that we become what God is calling us all to be, the pillar of truth. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the conviction that it brings. How we, how we can... Uh, fool ourselves sometimes into thinking that you know we say some prayer and then like all of a sudden everything's good that we don't have to like repent that we shouldn't be bothered by the things that you you call out and say that are a front to you those things are still in front to you it's just you have made a way for us to to get out from underneath the penalty of them and that gift that gracious gift is beyond measure should motivate us to want to be more and more like you and to want to be changed by you and to be restored by you, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we'd all take that seriously. We'd all examine our hearts and we'd, we'd long to be repentant. We'd all examine, we'd all, we'd all long to, to, uh, uh, to respond to that conviction in a way that changes us. Father, I'm so far and away from perfect. It's just pathetic. I even wonder oftentimes why you even have me here doing the job that I do. I'm so broken. 
But Lord, I just pray that you just continue to, to convict me of the things that, 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 that are sideways in my life. And that you give me the strength to change them. That you just urge me on to be remade in the image of Christ. That's what I want. I just know how much, how, how, how broken I was. And how much loss that I was facing. And I'm so grateful for your presence in my life that I want to be more like Jesus. I just want, I just want to be pleasing to you. And I pray that we'd be a people that's the same way. And I pray, Lord, that you'd lift up a people in this community that want to change the world. And, and, and people that want to go share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and the world around us. And Lord, I pray that you're glorified in all that we say and all that we do. And we love you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.